The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm John Fort. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Friday morning, by the way, and welcome to Tech Check. I'm Deirdre Bowes in San Francisco with John Fort at headquarters. Carl has the morning off today. Stocks sliding after hotter than anticipated jobs data, but the Nasdaq still positive on the week after that big rally following Fed Chair Powell's remarks on Wednesday. We will take a look at how layoffs are impacting tech. Plus, what are earnings telling us about enterprise demand? Marvell, Zscaler, Asana falling. Some saw in PagerDuty, though. They are getting a boost today. And speaking of PagerDuty, Cloud Week is coming to an end here on Tech Check. But we have two more big interviews to close out the week. The CEOs of both PagerDuty and Smartsheet are coming up this hour, John. Yeah, and let's run through some of those names that you mentioned. Uh, start off with cloud earnings. They're mixed this morning. One big mover, as you mentioned, I think Asana falling 14% after the work management platform offered weaker than expected revenue guidance for the fourth quarter. On the other end of things, though, we've got Samsara, which is a larger market cap than Asana, and it is up 20% on strong results. On the downside, Zscaler, uh, the cybersecurity firm, posting earnings and guidance beats, but investors are worried as the company reorganized its sales team and the CFO, Remo Canessa, told uh, analysts larger deals taking longer to close. I don't know if that sounds familiar. We heard something similar <laughs> from does. Snowflake and others uh, as, as customers take a longer look at their wallets. And then on the other end, PagerDuty, that is up 5.5% as, hey, people have to continue to watch uh, their networks. Um, and PagerDuty, with its automation, as you've got fewer tech workers available, that has been suffering, uh, that's been doing better, I, I should say. People need, uh, people need that technology. Lastly, Marvell, that semiconductor stock, uh, suffering after missing expectations for the third quarter and the fourth quarter guide was a little weak. CEO Matt Murphy placing the blame there on customers reducing inventory, D. Yeah, so it's a mixed bag. It's been kind of a mixed bag all week, John. What does it tell us? What's the big takeaway? This was a really important week for enterprise software earnings. And, you know, some of Wall Street analysts had said if we can get through this week, maybe that provides some upside in 2023. You've got a note from Morgan Stanley this morning saying that 2023 is going to be the start of a recovery year. Of course, they note how much these multiples have come down. But as you and I have been talking about a lot, John, we've been talking about these lengthening deal cycles since the summer, since maybe even a little before then. Um, is it going to get worse yet again in this current yeah. quarter? How does that set us up for 2023? I think that's a big question. That's what we've been trying to figure out all week on Cloud Week, speaking to some of the key CEOs. Yeah, I think Bill McDermott, who joined us here on Cloud Week, was one of the first to call out those mm -hmm. lengthening deal cycles several months ago. Here's, here's one of my first takeaways from the week, which started in Las Vegas for me, talking to Adam Solipsky, uh, CEO of AWS. It seems to be the purpose-built kind of cloud app-type solutions that solve problems that companies have right now that are doing a bit better. And in today's mm -hmm. earnings results, names like PagerDuty and Samsara, I think, are standouts in that category. Samsara's got technology that's used 
for really logistics, right? Um, truckers, you know, in trucks, where is that freight coming from? What's happening inside manufacturing facilities? You know, they're using sensors and the cloud to deliver that data. I mean, strong results from them. Anytime you see a stock up in this, in this print, 20 plus percent, even at this hour, that, that's quite a response. And then pager duty on the other side, companies are cutting back some people, but not the folks who are fixing the network, right? You, you need those people to stay on the job, D. Yeah, you do. And it raises a lot of questions about, you know, are we going to see more headcount reductions? Speaking of that, let's turn to the jobs outlook. Of course, it is a jobs Friday and non-farm payrolls uh, beat expectations in November. The tech industry, though, is still feeling the pain. DoorDash, one of the latest to cut headcount, laying off more than 1,200 employees. It's about 6% of its global staff. RBC downgrading the stock this morning, citing slowing order growth, limited EBITDA downside support, even Uber out-competing the company in New York, the brokerage notes. Uber, in fact, is bullish on their own prospects. CEO Darek Hazrashahi saying yesterday that they don't have any plans to cut staff. Though, If you remember back to the beginning of the pandemic, they did do um, some big layoffs then. Joining us now to break down the landscape, The Verge editor-in-chief and CNBC contributor, Nilay Patel. Nilay, it's great to have you. Um, so we've been talking a lot over the last weeks and months about these layoffs in tech. And there's this idea that Bernstein brings up. They call it Elon's razor, doing more with less staff. Does innovation suffer? I don't think we know the answer to that yet. But it will be an interesting case study, won't it, to see how much Twitter can cut and still produce if they are going to and what that says about other tech companies that have hired a ton over the last few years. Yeah, I think there's some truth to that. I think every Silicon Valley CEO that I have talked to is very curious to see if uh, Elon's moves at Twitter result in a functional company and what that means for their business. I would note that we have no evidence that Twitter will be a functional company or not. Uh, it's still very much and remains to be seen territory. Uh, it seems to be more chaotic than ever actually over there. On the other hand, when you listen to the reasoning for these job cuts at DoorDash, at Meta and others, what you hear over and over again is that these companies bet on long-term secular shifts in the pandemic around e-commerce, around working from home, and those shifts did not turn out to be true. And in fact, we're not bouncing back to you know 2020. We're bouncing back to 2019 in terms of people going to the mm -hmm. office and traveling and spending on experiences. And a lot of that language sounds really familiar from not just before the pandemic, but even a year before the pandemic. Uh, and that, to me, uh, feels opportunistic. If I'm going to be really honest with the audience here, I hear that from these CEOs, and I think Mark Zuckerberg saying we overbet on e-commerce being a long-term secular shift. Yeah, Mark, I, I don't think you thought people were going to shop from home forever. I don't think you thought everyone was going to work from home forever in the depths of the pandemic, and your business was big enough to subsidize whatever metaverse creation you want to do. I think you took that opportunity to hire a lot of people because your competitors are hiring a lot of people. And now you have a ready-made excuse to trim your company down mm -hmm. uh, against a lot of the growth that you were unable to manage in an all-remote workforce. And I, I hear that reasoning over and over again. And it is happening especially in tech, well, where it is true that smaller teams are better. Neelay, though, I think some of these companies, and it's not just Facebook, maybe um, Shopify too, it's not that they thought that people were going to shop from home uh, for delivery forever, but the omni-channel trend where people order at home and pick up and store or do curbside, it seemed to be tilting more toward less in person. And it seems that that did take some of these companies by surprise, and so they didn't need 
the, the degree of ramp up in workers. I mean, we were talking about DoorDash. Yeah, they're cutting, um, what, uh, 1,250 ish people, but they added more than 4,000 people just in the last year, right? So they're pulling back somewhat, these companies, but not even back to 2020 levels. They're just kind of pulling back to, you know, halfway through 2021 level. Well, no, halfway through 2022 levels, I should say, in some cases at the best. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think a lot of it is, yes, they thought that this omnichannel model would work and everyone would, they basically believe that the convenience of their platform would enable them to grow into other markets. And what they're cutting back to is their core business, right? And the core business did grow. What I don't think any of these companies, DoorDash included, anticipated is that there would be actual competition from the regular experience, right? From going to the store, from going to the restaurant, from just wanting to be out in the world. And that is just, if you look at what is happening in tech in particular compared to the rest of the economy, there was a belief that once people experienced the overwhelming convenience of doing everything from home on a computer, they would never go back and that you could actually grow those experiences into everything else. And I think what you see in particular with a DoorDash, even with some of the, the cloud companies you're talking about, is yet yeah, we don't have to spend that money. We can go spend that money on other things. We can our customers are, have a wide range of opportunities to spend their money on real life experiences mm -hmm. and all the stuff they're doing on their laptop screens. Yes, it might be more convenient, but it might not be as fulfilling. And so you can't just grow, you can't just eat everything uh, with a SaaS business. You know, stock-based compensation, also important uh, key to this in terms of headcount. A company like DoorDash, Uber, Lyft, spending huge amounts on that, that, again, as they're trying to get to profitability, hinders that a little bit. Neelai, though, let's take a look at succession plans. This has been a theme, uh, certainly, over the past few months, and we've seen some major C-suite shakeups. Brett Taylor, the latest, stepping down as co-CEO of Salesforce on Wednesday, handing the reins back to co-founder Mark Benioff. There's Bob Iger returning to Disney after already serving for 15 years as CEO. Even Elon Musk has said that he's not interested in being CEO of any company and expects to find someone else to take over the social media giant over time. Will he find that person? Eli, why are these companies having trouble picking a leader? Is there something unique about these businesses or about the current leaders and that they just can't let go? I think it's a little bit of both. I think it's pretty hard to let go. And I think notably, uh, the Iger case is really notable um, because he handed it over to an operator, right? And Chapek got in trouble because he tried to operate what he thought was a fixed, a finished vision for Disney. And he said, we're going to optimize the finished vision for Disney. And he rolled out a bunch of management speak inside of a creative company and got kicked out. I think the same is actually true for Benioff. Right? Benioff is a visionary. Taylor is an operator. What did he most successfully just operate? A lawsuit against Elon Musk at Twitter as chairman of that board. Uh, I think the visionaries realize this is a time of extreme change. And that is when you want to let go of the least. Right. That is when you say, OK, I'm the person who understands the North Star of the company better than anybody. And I'm going to hold on to the reins and make sure that even as we change everything else, the culture of the company, the vision of what we make, the soul of the company stays in place. And you hear it over and over again, especially with Iger in his return to the company. He's going to keep a lot of the changes that Chapek uh, instituted. He's going to make sure that Disney Plus gets a lot of inventory. He's going to make sure uh, that the company fundamentally is a bet on re the retail consumer. But he is going to reorganize the company around its creatives again. Mm. And that, that sort of in the middle change is really hard to perceive from the outside. 
But if you're the actual CEO of the company, that's what creates the culture. And I think you're seeing that over and over and over again, that these companies perceive change, especially big business model change or big economic headwind change. And the leaders who created the culture are coming back to protect the culture of the company from operational change. Right. Okay. Before we go, Neil, let's talk Twitter and content moderation for a moment. Uh, When we started the week, Elon Musk was embracing Kanye West and uh, fighting Tim Cook. But now it's Friday and he suspended Kanye West and is embracing Tim Cook. Uh, Some realities there about what how a platform really has to operate these days and the eyes that are on these platforms overall. Yes. Yeah. uh, You know, I really just want to talk about Disney's org chart for the rest of the time here, but I will happily (laughs) talk about Twitter and content moderation with you guys. Fundamentally, the job of being the CEO of Twitter or any major social network is being a lawyer, right? It's deciding what goes up and comes down and what gets boosted and what doesn't get boosted. And Elon is learning that he needs to be a lawyer, not a technology in this, uh, not a technologist in this job. And that means politicking his way through his relationship with uh, Apple and the App Store, which has a lot of power over every app is that we learned from a long lawsuit with Epic about Apple's antitrust concerns. And it means dealing with famous anti-Semites now and pulling their stuff down and finding reasoning for it. And what I would point out to everyone is that Elon's stated reasoning for suspending Kanye West indefinitely doesn't make any sense. I do not think there should be Nazi swastikas on Twitter. I think they should all come down. I don't think there should be Nazis on Twitter. But if you're going to pull them down, you need solid reasoning. And the reasoning that Elon gave was this tweet was an incitement to violence. That doesn't make any sense. And it really isn't actually a... a a rule that Twitter has. They have all these other rules that you can use. And so if Elon wants to be the face of content moderation, he's going to have to basically become a judge and issue rules that people can depend on. And that is not how we have seen Elon Musk operate. Well, didn't he say that he was going to put in place this uh, this board of, of advisors before he reinstated any of these controversial accounts? And then he blamed some outside groups on why he decided not to do that. But it sure would be nice if he had that board right now to deal with Kanye West, right? It would be nice if he had that board right now to deal with Kanye West. It would also be nice if he had that board just to give his user base and, importantly, his advertisers, which are almost all of the revenue at Twitter, a sense of stability. What Twitter lacks right now is any sense of stability whatsoever. There's People have a lot of conviction in Musk. I think that's true. But there's no stability to its policies, its process, or even its service uptime. It is breaking in, in strange ways. Well, so fundamentally, you create processes and committees to provide stability, and Twitter has none. Making Facebook look good. Neil, I thank you. Neil I Patel. Thank you. Well, not that that oversight board has been so useful over at Facebook either. Uh, meanwhile, though, a slew of crypto headlines once again pouring in today. Coinbase has accused Apple of blocking its wallet app until it disabled NFT transfers. The DOJ is asking for an independent probe into FTF, FTX's bankruptcy. Plus, Binance has paused withdrawals after a possible token hack. And if that wasn't enough, rising tether loans uh, are adding to risk in the stable coin space. That was a report from the Wall Street Journal yesterday. And to chat more about this, let's bring in our one and only Kate Rooney, the only person who can cover this many <laughs> headlines in the span of a few minutes. Let's talk about the DOJ first, though, and yeah. an independent probe into FTX. How would this differ than the one it's currently going through? So it's going through bankruptcy in Delaware. This was also out of a Delaware court. It sounds like from what the DOJ is saying here, these are going to work very closely together. So the bankruptcy process and the DOJ process, the DOJ is looking for discovery here. They're looking for evidence that Sam Bankman-Fried 
his colleagues at FTX and Alameda committed fraud, which has been the big topic of conversation in all of these interviews, his intent. This is really where the rubber meets the road. And if there is any implications, if there's any guilt here for Sam Bankman-Fried, the DOJ is looking to find it. So that, that is really what to look for here. This is what we've been waiting for. I had heard from sources that the DOJ was looking into this immediately. So sort of expected here, but this is likely where we'll get the next leg of what the implications are for Sam Bankman-Fried. And so the FTF bankruptcy and what a lot of the other exchanges are going through, whether that is insolvency, whether that is tough questions about their proof of reserves, Binance moving money around to show its proof of reserves. It's kind of amazing to me that people are still holding their money in crypto at this moment with so little oversight still. And then you have this tether piece. I know that people, you know, tether truthers as they're called, (laughs) um, including us. We've been talking about tether for, for a very, very long time. Where's the audit? How mm-hmm. do you really know what they're holding? How do you know that it's not collateralized itself or, right. you know, lend it out? Um, does it surprise you that it's sort of it's holding up and that people are still using Tether? I guess that's what they argue, yeah. right? But they do have sort of these loans, these secured loans that have, what, a $6 billion balance? Yeah. I mean, one of the really surprising parts here is that they've disclosed for a while now, for a couple of quarters, that they have these loans on their balance sheet. It's now up to about 9% of their total assets, up from 5%. So that balance sheet item is growing. So they're taking on more loans. The fact that these are denominated and payable in Tether is a surprise. And it does speak to some of the broader issues here. Lending has been one of the issues that has taken down multiple companies. uh, Three arrows we've seen this year. Lending really is what people are worried about right now. And so the idea that Tether here is uh, denominating some of its loans. The one question is, what happens if, if it loses its dollar peg? So if it you know, trades at $1.50, for example, which we haven't seen, you know, those loans are more expensive. And what does that mean for the collateral? Do they need to post more collateral mm-hmm. on the other side? If it loses its dollar peg, if it trades if at it a discount, down. you might have the, the collaterals also affected. So that's one issue. But there's also these market forces that keep it at a dollar. Alameda Research, which was Sam Bankman-Fried's Quant trading firm was one of the the firms that used arbitrage opportunities to either buy at a discount or a premium and keep that peg stable. Mm -hmm. So now that they're out of the market, there are some that are worried that the dollar peg could be in uh, danger here, but still a very popular way to get access to dollars, especially offshores. And it remains that black swan, but as the last few months have taught us, is black swans are not all that uh, rare. Yeah, we've seen a couple of those. Uh, Kate Rooney, thanks (laughs) so much for being with us. John. The final day of Cloud Week continues after this. PagerDuty CEO Jen Tejada is next. Plus, we will check in with CEO of Smartsheet. Tech Check is just getting started. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Let's check in on shares of PagerDuty. 
Shares up 5% after delivering a beat on the top and bottom lines in Q3. Earnings guidance for the current quarter coming in above consensus. Joining us now in a CNBC exclusive, PagerDuty CEO, Jennifer Tejada. Jen, uh, good to see you. These results held up remarkably well despite what we've heard from so many software companies about lengthening deal cycles and uh, moves to consumption-based pricing. Is it the mission-critical nature of what PagerDuty is offering? Is it the investments you've made in automation in a labor-constrained environment? What do you attribute that most to? Well, you nailed it. It is the mission-critical nature of operations. Uh, For our customers, they're looking for an integrated platform that helps them manage incidents and interrupt work in an environment that's increasingly difficult. You know, if you think about it, even in a macro environment that's slowing down, incidents are not, and in fact, they're becoming more expensive. So we had a really strong quarter, growth up 31%, but also improved our operating leverage significantly, up 1,000 basis points quarter on quarter, and our first quarter of profitability coming in a quarter earlier than guidance. So So overall strong. What about the the moves that you have been making in automation? Are you going to be able to increase the deal wallet size, given that there's so much constraint on technical labor still in that environment, as we've seen even from today's jobs report, uh, even though some parts of the economy are slowing down, labor is still in demand? Absolutely. There's still a shortage of software engineers everywhere. And, you know, that's a very large TAM, 25 million software engineers out there. Even if that TAM were to contract, we've penetrated that less than 5%. So there's still a lot of runway to grow in the software engineering uh, market. And equally within our install base, still a lot of opportunity because to your point, we're selling incident response, automation, AI ops, and customer service ops, and increasingly addressing more advanced use cases for interrupt work across the enterprise. You know, over the last quarter, we saw significant customer engagement and a record number of expansion transactions. Our customers are still grappling with digital transformation and DevOps acceleration, but they're also now looking for platforms that can help them reduce their costs and improve their productivity in a way that helps them serve their customers more effectively. Hey, John, good morning. It's good to see you. It's Deirdre. Um, you guys have a seat-based model, and we started the show talking about layoffs that we continue to see here in the Bay Area and beyond, but specifically in tech. Um, how do you anticipate that impacting or not impacting demand for your product? Well, while we think the macro environment is a headwind for our business and just about every business out there, um, we have a very diverse customer base. So the tech industry makes up less than a third of our total ARR. And you know, what I've seen in, in the tech industry is, again, uh, companies protecting their software engineers because they are a scarce resource. It's still very hard to come by uh, great tech leadership and great uh, software developers. And again, even if that um, even if that headcount started to contract from a growth perspective, we're still not wall to wall in most engineering organizations. There's still a lot of underpenetrated TAM just within our install base for us to go after. So we think there's still a tremendous growth opportunity. And given you know the work that we're doing to continue to improve operating leverage at roughly the same rate we have over the last couple of quarters, we expect to be a durable, balanced growth company that will emerge from you know this more difficult environment even stronger. What's your approach to profitability now? You, you hit non-GAAP EPS of, uh, you know, it's positive three cents 
um, versus consensus expected to be less. Um, a lot more investor focus on profitability these days, but you've also got clearly some growth wind still at your back. So w- where do we go from here? Well, this has been a long-term program for us to achieve uh, balanced growth. So over the last several quarters, even years, we've been looking for ways to sustainably reduce our cost structure and improve our ability to continue to invest in important innovation projects, AI ops, automation, customer service ops, and more recently, flexible workflows, which allow our customers to apply pager duty to different types of interrupt work, both within incident response and beyond. Um, it's also enabling us to continue to invest in growth capacity, and we've been very disciplined about capital allocation rather than pulling headcount growth forward over the last couple of years. So we see ourselves in a very good position controlling the controllables, uh, even as the macro environment you know, continues to be volatile, we expect to um, continue to perform well. Now, having said that, I don't have a crystal ball. I can't see into the future. But what I do see, again, is very strong engagement from our customers, um, a team that is executing incredibly well. And frankly, we're in a space where we're solving critical, urgent, relevant problems with very high ROI and fast time to value, which is much more attractive to our customers than you know, multi-year deployments and, and very expensive solutions. We've even seen some wins where we're consolidating other niche players by having an integrated platform that combines incident response, AI ops, and automation. Right. Well, now would be a great time for a crystal ball. If anybody's got one they want to send me, <laughs> I'd love to have it. Uh, but right now, PagerDuty up about 6% after that earnings beat. Jen Tejada, thank you. Thanks. Great to see you both. And on a programming note, a big week of ProTalks closes out today, 3 p.m. Eastern. Evercore's Mark Mahaney joins our own Christina Partsanevelis with his top internet picks. Scan that QR code right on your screen to join that conversation. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast generating texts in seconds thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magirite is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Contessa Brewer with your CNBC News update. Here's what's happening right now. Ford reporting a 7.8% decline in November sales compared to a year ago. But Ford's electric vehicle sales more than doubled, making it the second best EV seller behind Tesla. Gasoline prices are falling. Once again, the average price of unleaded regular gas is now $3.45 a gallon, according to the Oil Price Information Service. It's near the lowest levels we've seen since Russia invaded Ukraine in February and more than 30 percent below June's record high, which exceeded $5 per gallon. Also falling, the size of Wall Street bonuses. Goldman Sachs is reportedly planning to slash this year's bonus pool by more than 10 percent. That comes a day after Jeffrey's financial group said it's cutting its own year-end incentive pool. It's been a difficult year here for mergers and acquisitions, as well as other fee-earning activities for Wall Street firms. Cannabis is making strides in its competition with alcohol. According to a report from Jeffrey's, cannabis will account for $26 billion in sales this year, about 10% of the size of the alcohol market. But five years ago, cannabis was just 2% of the overall market. 
All right, John, I'll send it back to you. Well, cannabis versus alcohol. Yeah. Uh, who wins? Uh, that's one way of putting it, Contessa. Thanks. Let's get back to Cloud Week. Smart Sheet shares rallying this morning after the cloud-based work management company turned in strong third quarter results. Smart Sheet also improving its profitability on track to be cash flow positive by the end of the fiscal year. Joining us now in a first on CNBC interview, Smart Sheet CEO Mark Motter. Um, Mark, good to see you. So um, tell me, what is it about what Smart Sheet uh, is offering that allowed you these kinds of results. Sort of got this working theory that in these days with the enterprise, it's applications that solve a pain point now that are selling a little bit better than tools that you sort of assemble your solution yourself. Yeah, John, good to see you again. I think we really focus on getting back to the, the basics. And when you speak with customers about how we can help drive revenue for them or achieve cost savings, they're really interested in listening. I mean, one great example of this last quarter was a large appliance manufacturer is trying to get their product to market more quickly. How can we deliver the same number of campaigns we used to with less cost, with greater accuracy? And when you have a customer who's able to take a cycle that's typically 16 weeks, knock it down to four weeks, eliminate agency costs where it falls right to the bottom line, those are the types of stories people respond to today. And that's one of many stories like that that we had last quarter. I wonder what's the runway on that, though, as if things continue to slow. Does that same type of momentum continue? How much visibility do you have into a couple of quarters ahead, um, whether there's still gas in the tank for, for that reasoning for customers to be making the purchase? I think the pressure actually goes up, John. I think they're trying to find for more programs, more processes to change. And the challenge is, how do you make those changes in a cost-effective way? How do you have velocity, high-velocity software that you can purchase and get yield from inside of a quarter? That is hard to do. And the beautiful thing about some of this new technology like Smartsheet is that it's actually enabling people who are less technical to achieve these outcomes. It's not reliant on the third-party consultant. It's not reliant on the developer at every turn. And that is something customers are looking for. Mark, talk a little bit about productivity within your own business. I know earlier this year you were talking about sales rep productivity and some issues there um, ramping more slowly. However, that seemed to have turned this quarter. What made a difference and how does that impact how you're thinking about hiring next year? I think a lot of it, Deirdre, is time in the saddle. We had a huge number of people come and join our company early in the year. Every quarter that passes, they get more refined in how they can present value to customers. And we started to see that really take hold in October. Uh, we had a strong October finish where our newest cohort of sales reps from this year started to click in. Uh, there's still a lot of room to go. It is not an easy market out there, but uh, I feel really good with how the team is shaping up. Yeah, um, people holding the stock this morning feeling pretty good, too, with it up about 15 percent. Mark, thank you. Thank you, John. Thank you, Deidre. Still to come, Elon Musk and Tesla kicking off the first semi-truck deliveries. More on the stock impact when Tech Check returns in a moment. Let's get a gut check on Tesla, down a little over 1%. CEO Elon Musk announcing delivery of the company's first-ever semi-trucks. The first models will go to PepsiCo, which will use the trucks for deliveries here in California. The semis have an estimated range of 500 miles, able to haul a max payload of more than 80,000 pounds. Tesla stock is down 45% this year. We'll be right back. Public companies, they're not the only ones looking to cut costs. Private companies are also trimming headcount and delaying public listings. Julia Borston is with us now on more on how CNBC Disruptor 50 companies are faring. And Julia, these typically lag their public counterparts, but you're seeing more happen at these stages. 
Yeah, that's right. This tech wreck that we've seen is having ripple effects into the startup ecosystem. At least one third of the 2022 Disruptor 50 companies have announced layoffs, a sign of leaner times for VC-backed startups. The biggest cuts, delivery service GoPuff has cut over 20% of its workforce, nearly 2,000 jobs over the past year. Just last month, online payments company Stripe cut 14% of its staff, totaling over 1,000 employees. The number of companies that had hoped to go public, such as Chime, GoPuff, and Instacart, have canceled those plans or put them on hold. Cyber Reason filed confidentially and is now looking for a buyer. As companies have less opportunity to go public, they also have less access to private capital. PitchBook reporting that in the third quarter, investment across the tech sector softened for the third quarter in a row. VC investments totaled $4.7 billion in Q3. That's down from a peak of nearly $10 billion in Q4 of last year. And the check size is also getting smaller. The number of mega rounds, those are investments of more than $100 million, fell by more than half to 285 in the first half of this year, down from 674 million, 74 of those checks in the same period a year earlier. It's also worth noting that 6% of the companies that did manage to raise funds this year did so at lower valuations. The majority of those down rounds happening at the later stage, that's hitting companies that may have been hoping to go public, and they raised money because they needed the cash. Deirdre? Yeah, later on in the show, we're going to be talking to one counterpoint on that. That is Palmer Luckey's company that just raised a massive round amid this downturn uh, that you laid out so well. While we have you, Julia, though, I want to get you on Disney because with all the challenges that Bob Iger is going to be facing as he takes back the reins at Disney, um, we haven't talked a ton about what's happened in Florida, but now we've got headlines that lawmakers may reverse that move earlier this year. Break it down for us. What's Bob Iger facing here? Yes. So there's apparently a compromise underway. So under Bob Iger's predecessor, uh, Bob Chapek, there was this rift with the Florida government. Disney has for years operated effectively as its own tax district, its own um, its own little mini government within the state of Florida, where they could handle um, the tax issues and also handle things like their their own firefighters and trash collection. Now, this was going to be reversed um, uh, after a vote in April, in part because of this conflict over the so-called don't say gay bill. But now it appears there's a compromise in place. This was reported by the FT. We've reached out to Disney. We don't have um, any comment, but we're going to be um, following up to see what the latest is on that. Because if Bob Iger can can create some sort of compromise here, that would be very much beneficial for that massive park um, and, and the overall parks division, which, of course, has been such a cash generator for the media giant. All right, Julia, thank you. After the break, we just mentioned it is the second biggest venture capital round of the year in the U.S. Oculus founder Palmer Luckey's defense tech startup Andoril now valued at $7 billion. He's going to join us on the other side of the break. Don't go away. Welcome back. Palmer Luckey has raised nearly $1.5 billion. His defense technology startup Andoril now valued at $8.5 billion. That's up from $4.2 billion 18 months ago. Morgan Brennan is at Northrop Grumman's Palmdale site in California as part of CNBC's coverage of the B-21 bomber and ahead of the annual Reagan National Defense Forum this weekend. And she joins us now with Palmer Luckey. Morgan. 
Hi, John. Thanks so much. Yeah, it's a big day in terms of news for Andrel Industries, but it's a big day this weekend or a big weekend in general for news for defense more broadly. Palmer, great to have you on. Uh, congrats on this new funding round. It, it comes on the heels of what's been a pretty busy year for Andrel. You've had some high profile award contra uh, contracts awarded, uh, particularly around your counter drone technology. You've expanded into Australia as a market and you've expanded into what are essentially robot submarines. What does this new capital enable Andrel Industries to do now? Well, we're going to keep doubling down on all of the same products that we've already been building, but we're also building a lot of new products. So across air, land, sea, subspace, or sub subsea and space. And some of these are things that we've been working on for years that we're just able to you know, really reinvigorate our development on. While a lot of other co tech companies have been laying people off, we've been accelerating our hiring and that's what we're going to be using most of this capital to do. Go out and hire great engineers who want to work on national security problems that matter. So how does that speak to the growth that you're seeing at Andrel right now? The fact that at a time where many tech companies are cutting costs, uh, you are expanding and you are able to bring in capital and nearly double your valuation. Well, I think that if you look at national security, it's the most important industry in the world right now. Uh, I, a lot, while a lot of other industries are really struggling, we're seeing the future of warfare is going to be defined not by these traditional systems that are very exquisite, very expensive. There will always be a place for those systems. But you're seeing the future of warfare, uh, whether it's in Ukraine or other developing conflicts around the world, being defined by small, attributable systems, small, autonomous systems, systems that are using artificial intelligence to enable capabilities that never would have been possible otherwise. And that's what Andrel has recognized. That's what our customers have recognized. And, uh, you know, clearly as of today, that's what our investors recognize, that the future of war is changing and that Andrel is better positioned than most to deliver what's actually needed. Yeah, I mean, you sort of touched on it. Ukraine is becoming a, a case study for how quickly some of these new technologies can be deployed and certainly drone warfare, for example. I know an area that you're focused on uh, is is very much playing out on the battlefield there. How quickly can your products be deployed there? Are they going to be deployed there? Oh, I mean, we're actually already there. So we've been there since the first few weeks of the conflict. We continue to have people and hardware and software in Ukraine pretty consistently through the whole conflict. I was actually there just a couple months ago myself doing a resupply run and training uh, training Ukrainian armed forces operators on how to better use our systems to counter Russians. Uh, and so we're, we're going to continue. We're going to continue supporting Ukraine in that way. Deirdre, good to see you. Um, in the past, you've talked about how big U.S. tech companies like Alphabet have been pressured by their employee base to not work super closely with government agencies. Um, and it's allowed your company, Andrel, to fill a gap. In China, however, very different story, right? There's been more collaboration between public and private across tech and defense. I wonder how you see that playing out there, no, how that plays out now with the U.S export restrictions on high-performance chips. How is that going to affect the development of defense technology in China? Well, I'm hoping that it has a negative impact on the development of defense technology in China. I mean, one of the interesting things that you have going on in the tech industry is that the technology executives recognize that they're dependent on China for manufacturing, uh, for market, and sometimes even for capital. And so that's been driving a lot of the, uh, the push to keep China happy, to not do anything that would upset them, which often includes working with the U.S. military. There's 
never been a point in U.S. history where the largest tech companies in our country have largely refused to do work with the DOD. This is a unique modern problem. And you can imagine how World War II or the Cold War would have turned out if we had had similar dynamics. That said, I think what you talked about before, you know, kind of with the workers being anti-military or anti-defense, uh, I think that's actually been changing, if only because of the uh, Russia's war on Ukraine. You know, there's an old saying, you can't reason someone out of a position they didn't reason themselves into. Well, the war in Ukraine has given a lot of tech workers an emotional reason to all of a sudden understand the importance of deterrence, the importance of the United States and our allies having better weapons than Russia and China. And that's a really good thing that's come out of this very bad war. Yeah, it's such a key point you make, Palmer. And the other side of this equation and something that will come up at uh, the Reagan National Defense Forum this weekend and has for many years now at that forum is this idea that the DOD is looking to cut red tape, cut bureaucracy, bring in more startups, more small businesses uh, to the fold, be able to encourage the development of these new technologies and, and their rollout and, and into the hands of warfighters more quickly. It hasn't actually really happened that way. You have something called the so-called valley of death that entrepreneurs like yourself have spoken about uh, in past years. Do you think we are at a tipping point or a change in terms of that situation actually becoming a reality now? I think that we are. And I, the reason I think that is because the zeitgeist is changing. People are recognizing there's a problem. And the first step is recognizing that you have a problem, right? Uh, I think that a lot of people in Congress, the people with the power of the purse, are recognizing that they need to change the incentive structure and they need to make sure that these new technology companies working with duty can be successful, that the government can be seen as a reliable customer, as a fast-moving customer. And you're right, it hasn't really played out just yet, but I'm optimistic that it is, and I think the success of Android reflects that. You know, we're not hoping that they become a nimble customer. We're not hoping they one day adopt advanced technology. That's what all of the contracts that we're working on right now, they have been working on with us. They, they have been awarding us contracts. And I don't think that that would have been the case five or certainly 10 years ago. We're, we're, we're doing well because mm. they recognize that autonomy is going to define the future of warfare. All right, Palmer Lucky, founder of Andrel Industries. Thanks for joining us today on the heels of this latest funding round and a nearly doubling in the valuation. And guys, uh, as I just mentioned, the Reagan National Defense Forum kicks off later today. I'm headed over to Simi Valley for that. We're going to have all kinds of interviews. We're going to be bringing all kinds of uh, sound and information come Monday as well. Uh, it is a who's who in terms of defense officials, defense CEOs, uh, mm -hmm. lawmakers, and even some VCs and other high profile investors as well. So much more to come. Yeah, Morgan, we look forward to all of your coverage, which has been great so far. Thank you. And if you missed part of the show, don't forget to follow and subscribe to our podcast to listen anytime, anywhere, wherever you download your podcast. Deck Check is back in just a moment. One more thing before we go, our annual Cloud Week on Tech Check comes to a close today. From AWS and ServiceNow to PagerDuty and Smartsheet, here's a recap of our most weatherproof week of the year. Are we ready? Let's do it. Here to help us kick off Cloud Week on Tech Check, Appian CEO, Matt Calkins. Adam Slipsky, CEO of AWS. What are we learning about cloud and enterprise spending in the current environment? Time-reducing, money-reducing innovations actually tend to do pretty well in a downturn. Customers are realizing that in times of economic uncertainty, that's exactly when you want to lean into the cloud. Cloud Week continues on Tech Check. ServiceNow's Bill McDermott. We were born in the cloud. We're going for growth, but 
not growth at all costs. HPE CEO Antonio Neri. We are going on the offense. Our portfolio is unique in position from edge to cloud in a platform-centric model. Into its CEO, Sasan Gadarzi. We expect small business to grow between 19 to 20%, and that's at a well over $7 billion scale. The CEO of VMware is with us. Greg, you talk broadly about the multi-cloud model. Cloud costs are going up for customers. So they've got all these choices, and they turn to us to solve this multi-cloud complexity. One of the biggest names in the cloud, and that is Microsoft. Customers are looking to optimize their IT. Last quarter, we grew Azure 42% year over year. Pure Storage Chairman and CEO Charles Giancarlo. We're a market share taker in this $50 billion market. We're still a relatively small player, but the newest on the block with, uh, frankly, the, the best technology. Thanks for being with us for Cloud Week. Dee, I don't know about you, but solving problems in the near term and delivering cost savings, the cost savings, smart sheet, uh, pure storage, the problem mm -hmm. solving from uh, pager duty, uh, for example, uh, Samsara, who I'm going to talk to pretty shortly after the show, that seems to have shown up both in the messaging from these CEOs yeah. and the results we got. I mean, I learned a ton. I hope our audience did, too. We kind of covered all aspects of it, the infrastructure side, platform, services, um, with a whole host of those guests. So that was great, especially in an important earnings week. Uh, John, did we answer the question? Are we in the early innings? Are we out of the early innings? I think the answer is it's complicated, right? For some, yes, but there's still so much more to do as so many companies move their workloads. Well, Adam Solipsky at AWS argued that uh, there's still a lot more growth to come. Even though there's been a migration to mm -hmm. the cloud that's begun, it, it isn't necessarily even a third of the way <laughs> done. You, you've started the migration, but you haven't moved all right. the apps. So and we'll see. I will, I will note that Carl the Fog, our own cloud in San Francisco, joined us in full force yesterday. Uh, yeah. Have a great weekend, everyone. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.